for these people. And this is why I know that the challenge to the church to stay out of politics, that is not an arbitrary challenge. Almost all of the people, with the exception of one individual, were already politically left of center, even while they were Christ- considered themselves Christians. Thus was the basis of their cognitive dissonance. Hey there, before we get into the episode proper, I just wanted to set up a couple things. One, I think you've noticed that the episode length is a little bit longer today. I decided not to break this into two parts because I think it is very worthwhile to keep the entire thing together. I would really encourage you to stick with it because there's so much valuable information that came out during this discussion. Um, It's very dense, though. So if you normally listen to it on a faster speed, you might want to listen to it on normal speed. Do it in a few sittings, whatever it takes. It is worth it. Very much worth it. Um, I also wanted to clarify a couple things because I know my audience and I know there are certain things that people might ask a question about. Again, it's pretty dense. We go pretty fast with things. And there's two things I wanted to point out very quickly. One, John says pietism at one point. Uh, and in a positive sense, if you listen to how he describes it, it's not pietism of what you may be thinking in a negative sense. And it comes out to something that we talked about, piety versus pietism. And he's using it in a positive sense. He's not talking about what's come to be sort of the dominant definition among people who are um, in the enemies within the church community, in the anti-woke community, whatever you want to call it, of that negative keep your spiritual life to yourself type of pietism. Uh, No, he's talking about a rich, sanctified Christian walk. He also references some statistical studies he was doing, and he lumps uh, Mormons in in this study. He's not saying they're Christian. Let's get into the episode proper. Welcome to the Wikipedia Podcast. The Wikipedia Podcast is a ministry of enemies within the church. You can go to enemieswithinthechurch.com to, well, view the documentary if you haven't already. You can also click on the tab at the top that says Wikipedia to see all of our uh, written resources, as well as checking out the rest of our podcasts. If you found this useful, make sure to share it with others, uh, to engage with it. Let us know your thoughts. If you're watching on YouTube, Rumble, or even Spotify, you can comment on Spotify. But if you're listening on an audio platform that doesn't allow you to do that, you can email us at contactwokipedia at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. We love the feedback that we get. We get a lot of really good and detailed feedback, especially on the email. And so give us a little patience in getting back to you, but we promise that we will. Now, What are we talking about this week? If you can't see already, if you're watching on video, we've got a couple guests and we're going to be talking with them about a few different subjects from apologetics to deconstruction to how that kind of fits in with our specific theme of wokeness. But let us introduce. First, uh, I want to hand it over to my friend Jeff. Jeff, how are you doing today? I'm great, <clears throat> Kyle. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, always good to chat with you. Um, some of how you and I uh, cross paths, I actually 
um, recorded in the uh, book that I'll reference in, in just a few minutes, but uh, always good to uh, cross paths with you and certainly to talk about this particular topic. Mm, mm. Yes, and I think it's going to be a great discussion, but let us know a little bit about your background. So why, you know, why did I reach out to you today to bring you on? What is it that you do? So the area of apologetics is um, both a personal uh, passion and an academic passion for me. So I am the, uh, my name is Jeff Childress. Uh, I'm the chapter director of Reasonable Faith uh, Charlotte East. Uh, I'm the author of the book Deconverted, uh, The Deconstruction and Dismantling of the Contemporary Church. Uh, I'm the, uh, and my editor for that book is, uh, is on screen as well, Dr. Knox. Uh, I'm the co-host, speaking of Dr. Knox, um, I'm the co-host along with John of the Resonant Truth podcast. Um, this podcast is an exploration of Christian truth and relevance in post-modernity. Uh, from a, an academic perspective, I have a master's degree in Christian apologetics, and currently I'm a doc, uh, doctoral scholar uh, in the final stages of my doctor of ministry education path. My cognate uh, for that is expository teaching and preaching. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you already mentioned a little bit, we have Dr. Knox here as well. Uh, and he's looking good for being a little over 500 years old. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> I, Dr. I own a church and a, and a press. They're both mine. <laughs> That's right. Oh, I wish. So. But Dr. Knox, how are you doing today and what is it you do? And I'm going to put in a third question there as well. Uh, where can people find your podcast? There's been many friends of enemies within the church on that podcast as well. So I encourage people to go check it out. So um, my, my name is John Knox. Uh, I call myself John Knox the lesser, just so you know, not the greater. So, um, and I, I do have a PhD in theology and religion from the University of Birmingham out of England. Uh, although it was on the sociology of religion, I have a master's in sociology, a master's in Christian history and thought, and then I'm, I almost have another master's in psychology. So I have been teaching for about 25 years. I've actually taught apologetics since 2010 with Liberty University, and I've taught uh, psychology and sociology with them as well. Currently, I teach uh, church history, theology, and pastoral counseling classes. And I've got about uh, 16 books that I've published so far, uh, all of them on religion and church history. So I just love the stuff. Uh, and I, I love apologetics and I love thinking about the faith. So, uh, and as far as the, uh, uh, our, our podcast, the, the reasonable faith podcast, Jeff might have uh, more specifics on that, what, you know, what people can look for. So, yeah, that channel is the reasonable faith, Charlotte East uh, channel on YouTube. And uh, we've recorded um, uh, quite a few uh, podcasts over the past year um, and, uh, under that uh, channel heading. Well, I, I can say I'm excited for both of you to be here. Um, I think we're going to have a really good discussion. And one, one question, because I know at least one person is going to have it. You said that you're connected with reasonable faith. Does that mean that you think... Adam is a myth. <laughs> well, interesting question. So I, Kyle, as you are very well aware, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. 
Uh, I'm, that doesn't necessarily mean that those who I uh, respect um, in uh, the areas, uh, in any other disciplines related to uh, uh, biblical interpretation that I agree 100% with um, everything that is suggested. Uh, that is one area I've got a personal issue with. I actually have another area uh, in, in that space as well. So the, the relationship with reasonable faith is a, a sharing of intellectual property established um, by uh, William Lane Craig's organization for people who have their own apologetics ministries. Um, so that's the nature of the relationship there. So we can take advantage <clears throat> of professionally created videos, um, uh, uh, great um, text in, in response to question and answers uh, on apologetic issues and all of the work that uh, uh, Dr. Craig has done from a standpoint of really being the, one of the, the top uh, leaders in the area of Christian apologetics for the past 10 years, um, and, uh, and certainly one of the most highly respected. Uh, but in sharing all that doesn't necessarily mean every single uh, interpretation is re reflects 100% alignment. I think that was a very reasonable answer, <laughs> a very diplomatic answer. Uh, I, I and I knew I just had to throw that in there because at least one person was going to make assumptions about the two of you rather than, you know, actually figuring out what you believe. Yeah, I, I do think, you know, something that's interesting is that there's so much splitting that goes on in American society right now where people try to make this division. And I go, I mean, there, there's the, the fundamentals that we need to follow of the faith, the core values of the faith we have to follow. Um and I would actually, I would say Adam being one of those, belief in Adam as being a real person would be one of those. But there are other areas that are, you know, less delineated. And it's people are so quick to, to, to judge, you know, or to cut people off. And I, I'm big on, on listening and thinking and discussing, you know, and that's, so you got to be careful about that. And people will say, you know, um, you know, and like I said, with, with Adam, I do believe, I think it, it's part of the, the salvation formula, really, in many, mm -hmm. you have to trace the sin back. And uh, mm -hmm. so, when, but, but my question is, why do you, why do you want Adam not to be a real person? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's another podcast, John. I know, that's but... <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, that's, but that's an important thing is, is why, what, what does that gain? Especially, well, and that, that really is another podcast, but there's two sort of questions that I ask that I've termed the uh, common man logic, because if the Bible's God's word, it's God's word to all people at all times and all places, it's accessible to everyone. So if the common man can't read that interpretation out of it, if you hand it to a million people and they can't come to that conclusion. Well, frankly, you, you're probably pushing some form of Gnosticism at that point. I was just going to say that. Yeah, Gnosticism, huge. Yep. And the other one is the uh, layman faith test. If you pull out some sort of doctrine, and if you were to hand that doctrine to a you know your average layperson, and it's just a bomb that explodes in their faith and causes them to spiral and question mm. things... Well, that's probably not a safe doctrine. God doesn't give us bombs. 
So yeah, I think the question of why would you want to get rid of Adam is incredibly important. But well, that demonstrates something. That demonstrates something that I want to talk about, which is, again, young people are starting to develop a little bit of a distaste or distrust in apologetics uh, from these ideas of it's outdated, it's not answering the questions that are going on, it's making compromises. And what they're really getting at is it's still fighting against 20th century modernist militant atheists but and i'll open up this question and uh you know go off from there into why apologetics what it is and why it's still valuable but are we in you know is that the paradigm that we're still in are we still in the paradigm of the modernist militant atheist or have we moved on to something else yeah i think to uh, <clears throat> explore that. Let, let's kind of start with the with the basics of apologetics and, and its purpose and some of the real key questions and implications of apologetics. Um, the, the definition, there, there are really two um, ways to apply a definition to apologetics. From an academic perspective, it's simply the process of giving a rational defense of the gospel of, of Jesus Christ, apologetics from the, the Greek apologia. But from a practical perspective, <clears throat> apologetics re represents an intellectual inoculation of truth so that you can discern untruth. Um, and I, I believe this is why I, I, I feel like this is such a critical element for the church today. Uh, I believe, and my book explores this to a certain degree, I believe the next wave of apostates are sitting in the church pews today. And the mm -hmm. average church leadership has no clue who they are or the level of cognitive dissonance um, and the struggle and, and those related struggles that those people were experiencing. And it's because corporate level ministry is a discipline that is uh, prioritized over uh, personal ministry today. And we can talk about the, the whys and wherefores about that. The reason why I specify, Kyle, that <clears throat> apologetics must deal with both truth and untruth is that there is a big question that comes directly after you intellectually establish a grounding in the reality of the Creator God and the historical reality of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that question is, <clears throat> excuse me, that question is, so what? What are the implications to your life, morality, objective truth, and your lens of biblical discernment after you've reached that conclusion? And this is where the spiritual attack begins. Hmm. James Merritt, <clears throat> I'll give you a real world example of the level of concern. James Merritt made a comment a few years back at the SBC. Uh, during a time when the SBC leadership, and, and Kyle, I know you're very aware of what I'm about to, to say. Uh, during a time when the SBC uh, leadership um, uh, was dealing with CRT uh, and suggested it could be used as an analytical uh, tool, uh, Merritt made the, the uh, comment, if you men were as emboldened to preach the gospel as you are emboldened to preach against CRT, this world would be on fire for Christ. 
I've got to be honest with you. This comment was in my top 10 list of most naive comments ever made to the SBC. And that's quite a statement. Um, This was not the perspective of Christ in his message to the churches in Asia. We have a bimodal challenge. On one level, certainly preach the gospel, the absolute truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in Revelation 2 and 3, every church but one received warnings. And most of these warnings were against deviant ideologies infiltrating the church. So let's hit this on another angle. Um, in uh, Mark twelve thirty, 30, uh, Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. Well, why would Christ have specified four different dimensions of, uh, of humanity? And there's a reason why I believe that he called each one of those elements out individually. First of all, the soul is the province of God. Nobody can touch that. Secondly, the heart can only be given away. That phrase, she stole my heart. Well, that's not true. You gave it away, dude. And sometimes (laughs) you gave, gave it away on a poor decision. But the mind, Kyle, is the one aspect of your being that I can not only attack, but I can potentially manipulate. And Mm. this is where the spiritual battle begins. And I believe this is why Jesus specified these four dimensions as areas of exposure. I recently read a book uh, regarding dark psychology and gaslighting manipulation. It's a summary of uh, clinical research studies of criminal minds and and other people uh, who were researched that, that use deviant psychological manipulation tactics. And when you read this book, uh, you literally can see the tactics in use today in uh, the media, social media, in leftist politics. And this is really sad in the classroom um, that where an actual inculcation of deviant ideologies is occurring. Yeah. I say all of this to say that this is the war zone of the mind, and this is the intellectual and spiritual battle preparation of the mind for the discipline of Christian apologetics, insisting on evidence based on truth and the rejection of lies based on propaganda and gaslighting. And Kyle, this is uh, why the complexity of this topic is, uh, is why I've got so much passion about it. Mm. And I love several of the things that you connected in there. Um, you know, here at Wikipedia, every, you know, the beginning of every month, we do our How the Woke Manipulate series. And that's exactly why we're doing well, That's apologetics. We're trying to equip you to see these different manipulation tactics that we're putting in the context of woke people trying to manipulate you. But the, the ideas we're going over cover so much more than that. Now, it's super, super surface level. I want, mm-hmm. I want everyone to understand that when you're, you're watching that series, we're trying to break it down to its most basic, lowest level. But these are the kind of things that are going on all over the place. Everyone is trying to manipulate you. Everyone is trying to sell you something. Mm-hmm. Even people you like and trust, you know, I, I, I speak to this as someone who was an arrogant, manipulative jerk when he was young. Christ had to absolutely beat that out of me. Uh, It was not a gentle process of change. 
Uh, it was a violent process of change. Uh, I am very stubborn. But yeah. even people that are good, that you can trust, they're going to occasionally massage the truth a little bit. Mm-hmm. Now, when it's someone you trust and you love, you should be able to recognize these things. You should be able to study uh, truth to understand it. You should be able to do apologetics. You should be able to have all these different understandings so that you can correct them lovingly. But you also want to defend against the false ideas that are coming in from those outside that are trying to get you to believe a doctrine, believe a belief that isn't true. So this is critically important stuff. And you've already jumped into something that I wanted to talk about, which is it's still relevant. Mm-hmm. Just because you, in your mind, you know, if you're listening to this, your mind, you might think of apologetics as uh, a, you know, person in a debate in a college setting um, with an atheist sitting across from them snarkily uh, trying to uh, tell them that there is no God and they're they're defending against that claim. No, like you said, it goes into the the classroom and the manipulations that are going on right now. And are those manipulations, are those the doctrines that they're trying to get you to believe nowadays in the the modern, uh, well, let's be real about it, the modern woke religion that is being pushed, are those atheistic doctrines like we saw in the 20th century, or are we seeing something new? And is there a new enemy that we need to fight? I could probably talk to that somewhat. Uh, my, my PhD uh, research was on radical religious individualism. So I did a study of a town mm. in Oregon called McMinnville, Oregon, and I did a qualitative and a quantitative study too. And I don't think there's anything new about radical religious individualism, although it's more culturally accepted and applauded, especially in America, where we like, we've always been that way too. Um, so, um, but I think the, you, cause you, I think you originally asked about, you know, why is there a pushback with apologetics? And I think it's kind of, it's kind of ironic that the term woke has been applied to people who really always seem like they're coming, they've been awoken from a deep sleep and it, it troubles them. The, the apologetics, the doctrinal discussion, it, it actually is a threat to them because then they realize that this, this dream state, this fantasy that they've been in is wrong or dangerous and they don't like it they want to go back to that reality and i think the term that you use now is like the red pill you take the red pill but i'm like it's not a red pill it's it's a truth pill and uh you know much like what jack nicholson said some people can't handle it but i think that's why it's really it's it's kind of incumbent upon us to when we do our apologetics there's a spirit of love about it and beneficence where we're trying to help people. And I think that most people are that way. You're not trying to defeat anybody. You're trying to help share the gospel, the good news with them. And I think, though, um, you know, people might say it's that, that apologetics is not relevant, but it goes on all the time. Ben Shapiro, Michael Knowles, Jordan Peterson. I mean, all these people are having these apologetical kind of debates with other people. I just You have the Christian view or the conservative view, and then you have the progressive kind of nihilistic, hedonistic view. 
And so you kind of go back and forth. And I, I find it kind of interesting, though, that the left is so their their position is really untenable. It's just the, and they because it doesn't work logically. It doesn't work evidentially. It only works experientially. And that's why, let's, let's face it, who does it really attract? Young people who are very emotional and very experiential. So I think it's mm-hmm. very relevant, and it's almost, it's too relevant. And that's why it threatens them, you know? Mm. And, and Kyle, I, I think there's another element <clears throat> of why it gets pushed back. So if you take a look at the, if you take a look at the uh, apologetics, um, apologetics as a YouTube phenomenon, all right? You think uh, debates and you, you think, uh, um, you know, uh, hey, here's this key question that we need to uh, interrogate, attack, and show evidence of. Well, and, and you always, if you do that effectively, you always look at the interlocutor's uh, perspective on things. And, and it is, so if you take a look at the, at the attack mechanism, against Christianity. And you take a look at all those tools and all those weapons, and we can uh, discuss all day long on how Christianity uh, is able to defend itself against all of that. But here's the other aspect about that. Take all those same weapons and tools and tactics of attack, and now apply them to your ideology. ideology. That's where this becomes really challenging because you know, you, you apply this to the atheist perspective and there's no way it can withstand the level of scrutiny um, uh, that is applied to the Christian perspective and, and biblical truth and the historicity of these tenets of Christianity. So there's, there's, it's a, a two-sided, uh, you know, a double-edged sword in that, from that particular pers- uh, perspective because um, this will cut that same level of scrutiny will absolutely slice a deviant ideology that's based on propaganda very quickly. Hmm. I, I've, I've actually had a lot of experience over the 20, you know, 25 years of, of, of teaching of talking to atheists. And I gotta tell you, I love it. I love it. And, and part of it's, I go, I'm not afraid of scru- them scrutinizing my faith. And, and I've taught Bible survey. I taught Bible survey for like 15 years too. So I know Bible really well, and I know church history really well. And I think um, the atheist tends to uh, presume, you know, that I don't know, well, that I don't know as much as they know, you know. And I'm like, I, I really have thought about this. And I'm also, you know, they, they might call themselves seekers. I'm a seeker, too. I mean, I'm trying to follow truth, you know, and evidence, and I'm trying to do that, too. So I'm like, well, no, let's let's go ahead and, and let's investigate it. And they're always so funny because they really want to hate me. <laughs> they want to hate me, and, and but at the end, they still like me. And I'm like, no, I'm like, you know, I'm just normal. I mean, I'm like, um, I might see a little further, but I'm staying on the shoulders of those who've gone before me. But I've, I'm like, not just, you know, pitting my, my whole faith on one thing, you know, although... I do think, you know, you know, Christ is, is, is sinner and, you know, biblical truth is, is sinner and, you know, that, that there's a God exists. I mean, talking to, to atheists where they, they think that no God exists and I go, how big is the known universe? How much do we really know about it? So how can you conclusively say 
There's absolutely no God. And yet they believe in parallel universes, wormholes. Oh my goodness. You know, aliens. And I'm like, I, you know, there could be aliens out there, sure. But I go, where, where's your proof? Versus what, what the proof that we have. And and then I really, this part kind of breaks my heart, my heart because I go, they just don't understand how much God loves them and how much he yeah. wants to be reconciled with them and how, uh, you know, uh, you know, a, a relationship with Jesus Christ is actually the best thing that could ever happen to you. It, 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 it gives them the thing that the very thing that they're, they need and they're wanting for, but it does come at a cost. And the cost is their They have to abandon their self deification, that mm. radical religious individualism, as I call it, sacro egoism, you know, that their ego is the most important thing. And I'm like, you know, I go, I'm, I'm tired of being an egoist. I want, I want God to reign. His ways are better than mine. My ways only get me in trouble, you know, but I think you have to, you kind of, you know, you've said you struggled when you're younger, everybody struggles. Mm-hmm. And so you just get to a point, you go, I'm, I'm tired of, of fighting this battle. You can't, you're not going to ever punch God in the nose. You're not going to knock him out, you know? So, but, but, you know, he, he is Abba. He's our father. So you don't have to, you know? Yeah. You know, that, and that's definitely something that, you know, my journey, it, really did involve letting go of my ego. It involved, I mean, the whole stage from, you know, before I was saved, being saved, and then even afterwards, it was just different stages of letting go. I mean, th- that was my, my, my salvation experience was 100% a utter surrender. You know, I, I was raised... And, and, this goes into something, Jeff, that you had mentioned quite a bit earlier. You know, the next, uh, oh, I forget exactly what you said, but the, you know, the next round of uh, deconverting people that we're going to see, or, it, you know, in the church pews right now, people that we, we label as Christians. But yeah, that was, that was my, my experience here, you know, specifically in the Pacific Northwest is, is just that. You know, no, I was convinced I was a Christian. I was told, hey, say this this prayer to this this Jesus guy who died on a cross, and you'll get to go to heaven. And the emphasis was on what I get. It's about me. And that's the same message that was preached to all my friends. The, the gospel was never more than that, and it was never preached. It was always assumed. And the sad reality is, well, one, I had to get dragged kicking and screaming out of that to the point where I, you know, one night walking towards my bed, the world was just the worst place to exist in. I was miserable. Everything was hopeless. I thought I was a Christian, but why was I so miserable? And I remember walking towards my bed and just deciding that's it. Something has to change. I give up. And in that moment, I thought the giving up was either I'm just going to live an incredibly selfish, hedonistic life, or I'm going to end my life. And I remember taking one more step, crashing to my bed, and surrendering to Christ. Just boom, instantaneously. Because it finally broke through. I gave up on myself, my own ego, my own selfishness, my own just obsession with what I wanted. And it was at that moment, the one person that had actually preached the gospel to me, who's an apologist, and that's kind of how I came to faith, um, 
it got through and I was saved by letting go. You know, that this selfishness, we don't realize how pervasive it is, even in the pews. But there, there's something I want to jump onto because we've talked about truth. And I think this is one of these things that people are kind of, again, these younger and more cynical people when they're looking at the apologetic community. And in particular, and we already talked about, you know, we talked about it, so we'll name it. You know, we talked about William Lane Craig and compromises he's making on the historical Adam. They've seen that. They've seen um, in the face of, you know, wokeness growing, they've seen a lot of other leaders in the apologetic community stumbling on that issue. So on the topic of truth, can apologetics still work? I think we've already answered this question, but I want to make it clear for people. Can apologetics still work in a post-truth society? And Jeff, I know this is going to be, you know, this is the thing that you're excited to talk about. Jump off from there and let's start talking about deconstruction and what that is. So a perfect lead in in, into how I was going to answer that question, uh, Kyle. So um, this was an element of the research uh, for uh, the book uh, Deconverted. Now, this this is a book that came from my research for my master's degree. We interviewed uh, quite a few um, former self-professed Christians who turned their back on their faith. I use this research and and some of the findings from this research as a challenge to the 21st century evangelical church that uh, their ministry um, on a personal level uh, needs to be reevaluated. And and that's really the second part of my book is is a challenge to the church. But in answering your question, let me address some of the learnings from the interviews of the people who went through the deconstruction uh, process. First of all, these interviews, uh, I set these up to be 30 minutes, uh, Kyle. Uh, we didn't have a single one that was 30 minutes. Uh, the, the the shortest one was um, probably an hour and 15 minutes. The longest one was close to three hours. Um, there was a lot of anger um, in these uh, conversations, more cussing than I've heard in, in quite a while, a lot of emotion. Mm. A lot, and it, it didn't come from, um, it, it came from a space of, of, uh, of disappointment. Uh, and um, uh, it was very deep and very emotional for some of these people. We had multiple people break down in tears during this conversation. Um, and um, uh, they were very open and willing to share their experience, but it was raw. These, these were raw conversations, uh, Kyle. Um, a couple of other learnings. The church had no idea of their struggles. Um, they felt like that they did not have uh, somebody to uh, work with and, and, and talk to about the fact that they had true faith concerns, um, real critical faith-related questions. And they felt like that the uh, church was going to judge them as opposed to uh, work through the process of uh, dealing with uh, some of their concerns and struggles. But to one aspect of your question, I did find this. None of these deconversions were based on facts. 
None of these were based on a historical evidence or an evaluation of the archaeology or evaluation of textual criticism or an evaluation of uh, anything else that I could come up with from a standpoint of the hardcore rational evaluation of Christianity from a standpoint of historicity and, and validity of its claims. Um, many of these were based on bad experiences with the church. Most of this, though, there was an underlying story and an underlying element with all of them, and that is they all were experiencing cognitive dissonance with truth being peddled in society and culture and how that conflicted with truth as established in the Bible. And mm. uh, this was the ultimate source for the vast majority of the deconstruction process. Almost all of the people that I interviewed, Kyle, um, at the point that I interviewed them, considered religion to, to now be evil, not benign, but abject evil. And, and almost all, and this is another interesting finding for, um, for these people, and this is why I know that the challenge to the church to stay out of politics, that is not an arbitrary challenge. Almost all of the people, with the exception of one individual, were already politically left of center, even while they mm. were Christ considered themselves Christians. Thus was the basis of their cognitive dissonance. Mm. Um, the other thing that was sad about this is that most of these deconversions occurred over a long period of time. And the other sad thing about this is that every single one of these were still seeking truth elsewhere. And these are all wake-up calls to the church from a standpoint of reevaluating what personal ministry really truly means. We have such a focus on growth, and we have such a focus on corporate-level ministry and the flashing lights and the big music groups and the this and that and the other. And we've traded all of that to draw a seeker in lieu of what personal ministry is all about. Jesus was about personal ministry, personal conversion. When you stand before God, it's going to be you, not your group, not your tribe, not your club. It's going to be you. Yeah. Kyle, for some reason in the interviews, I had I added one question that I wanted to really get a flavor of what the now looked like for the, decon the people who've gone through the deconversion process. And so the question I, I had as part of the interview is, is there anything that you now fear that you didn't fear before? And there was one lady who stopped. There was complete silence for a good 20 seconds. And that's on a phone call. That's a long, long time. But I could tell she was struggling with this answer. And she broke the silence and said, I now fear death in a way that I never experienced before. <sighs> so the issue is, the struggle against apologetics is not against it as a professional discipline or what it's trying to, uh, to uh, prove from a factual basis. The struggle against apologetics is a rejection of the reality to the, uh, 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 and the answer to the question, so what, as a result of the truth of the tenets of Christianity and how it applies to your life. And that's where people have replaced God with their God, their self. And that trade-off is something they don't want to give up. In spite of the evidence, they don't want to make that trade-off. 
So that's kind of my perspective on your question. Wow. They kind of remind me of the, they, they, they kind of, they kind of remind me of the rich young ruler. Right. Mm. Who just, you know, and I, I, th- I mean, it's so funny because you talk about the, the relevancy of biblical truths. I go, people go like, oh, things change. I go, human nature does not change. And you still have, I was thinking lately, I've been thinking, man, humanity is just so naturally suicidal. I'm like, we really want to hose ourselves over all the time doing stuff that we know is bad for us and is going to break us, if not kill us. And so they do it. But perhaps that's the uh, eternal part of our, our soul nature that we feel like we know that we 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 sense this eternality, uh, but then we kind of confuse that with you know being God. And I'm like, we're not God. God is God, and I am not. You know, that's what you that's what you know. And we need Him. No one gets to the Father except for through Jesus Christ. God, you have to have God there too. But um, they they don't want to give up that power, which. And then if you talk about the, the example of Christ in the Gospels, who he did the kenosis, he emptied himself of his God, God's nature, right? To be with us, to serve God, you know, and, and that that's why he was there. His, his sole purpose was to, you know, be God's agent, to help us, to be our, our advocate and what he gave up. And, and then you go to the human side and we're arguing who's going to be, you know, who's the better disciple, you know, who's the better deacon, you know, who's, oh, and then, and then we start to like, we concoct these different uh, kind of like uh, mechanisms for sainthood for ourselves. Well, hmm. not only do I read the Bible, I also, I also am really good at um, recycling. In fact, I think I deserve a master's in spiritual cycling is what I want, you know, and you're just like that, that's good, but I don't, that's not, that is, it's not equivalent to true faith, you know? And, uh, but I think, I think they, they just, and I think they, I, it's funny though, because the irony is, I think they really know they're lacking and it bothers them, but I go, yeah, but yeah. God knows we lack. That's why, that's why he sent Christ. So you don't yeah. have to worry about your lacking. But they, I don't, maybe that's a get a trust thing they have, you know, or pride could be pride. too. Yeah. So. I think it's, it's several different things. And, uh, you know, I, there's one, I mean, there's so many threats, my goodness, there's so many threats I want to pull on right now, but I, I think one thing that, that church, many churches don't realize is they think that it's some other church's problem. You know, this other church struggles with this but not here at our church. Like we're a solid church. We take care of our people. And then something happens that shakes up up everything up. Um, You know, 2020, that shook up a lot of things in multiple different ways. And I know a lot of super solid, super biblically conservative churches and you can talk to their pastors and they're like, yeah, you know, we found all these people that just left and never came back, found out uh, political opinions of people that were radically to the left that we had no idea about. All these things were revealed in the, quote, really good churches. It, it doesn't matter what your church is, if it's good, if it's bad, whatever it is, 
you have to be taking care of your people and that's hard. And that's not, mm-hmm. you know, you both already you touched on this, but that's not popular nowadays. It's all about size and growth, not about actually discipling one-on-one the people, the full different layers of, uh, of discipling in a church from the corporate worship to the smaller breaking down of groups to the one-on-one. You have to make sure that people are taken care of and that their their issues are being addressed. Their sins are being addressed. Their errors are being addressed. That doesn't take place outside of getting down and getting dirty. I mean, when I was doing uh, church planning with the North American Mission Board, uh, there's a lot of things, a lot of questions they asked that I got in trouble with my answers. Um, but one <laughs> of them was talking about uh, just leadership and size and growth and plan. And I was just like, oh, well, if we grow to be uh, 150 people, you know, praise God. If we, uh, you know, grows to be 30 people, praise God. And, you know, they're kind of taken aback by that. Some of them openly would say, 30 people, that's a failure. You need to shut down the church. I've actually, I actually had yeah, that yeah. said to me. I actually had that said to me while I was interim pastor at a tiny little church. Now, the guy that said that to me, guess what? He shut down his church later. Uh, that should tell you something. Mm. But <laughs> my, my reasoning was, I said, no, look, if leadership can only handle discipling 30 people, then we should praise God that he only brought 30 people because we're, we're able to effectively disciple them. If there's a leadership structure in place that can disciple 150 people, praise God that they can be effectively discipled. But that's the measure. That's the measure. Can we effectively disciple the people that are there? And if the answer is no, then you need to do something to change what your church is doing. Because you are going to fail people. You're going to see people slip into this process of deconstruction and not even realize it. But you're also going to see people slip into the in-between state. Now, do you think this is a fair statement to say that the in-between state or one of the in-between states between fully deconstructed and left the faith and a conservative Orthodox Christian is a woke Christian. I mean, that's the argument I would make. I'd say that they're they're just someone in the process of deconversion, of deconstruction. Can can, can I can I uh, pull some uh, information from my my PhD study, mm-hmm. just real quick? So uh, when, when I did uh, I did a survey of all the churches in McMinnville, Oregon. There's like thirty. And I did a demographic one, and then I also we looked at the doctoral positions, and so and then and I was able to I tried to get a, a representative of each one of those churches, and then I plugged them into the statistical package for social scientists, and then I computated the data, and then uh, did a cross tab, and I saw groupings. So what I what I mm. noticed that was uh, this and this is in two thousand and six two thousand ten, um, what, what I noticed though within McMinnville population of they have about 40,000 people um you had a you had churches that i called sacroclerical so they were highly institutional churches like the catholic church 
you could say the Mormon church, you know, they have that real ironclad doctrine, very dogmatic churches. Then you had, um, I, so I called them uh, sacro-egoistical churches, and they were very kind of personal-oriented, very kind of like cafeteria-type Christianity, real emotional, you know, uh, I think um, Rob Bell will call it like the emerging church, the smells and the bells. It really was just an experiential thing too, okay? Then you had smaller ones that were mystical. I called those sacrotheistic, and they're very small. They're very small and kind of Gnostic and, you know, and almost cult-like sometimes. You know, mm. too. And then the other side, they had these other ones which were very loose. I called them sacrocommunal. So they're kind of like, uh, I, I call them church camp church. Where you'd show up and you'd have fun. It, it was really they didn't. They never talked about theology. They, I mean, they 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 just. It was more. It was more praxis and like in like you know taking care of the environment to get get along with people. But you have that. So I, and I think you know if if you think and this in regard to what you just were saying, which one do uh, is appealing in postmodern, especially millennial culture? And I go, I tell you which one. It's not. It's the sacro, not the sacroclerical one. Because that's doctrine and rules, they don't like that, you know. And but they liked they liked the sacro egoistical ones, uh, mostly because it gave them a sense of religiosity and spirituality, you know. And it fed them. Uh, and the other one was sacro sacro communal, the ones that kind of layperson one, because they could say, and I love this. They go, I went to church last Sunday. Really, what church? I was in the Cascades. Like, well, that's, those are mountains. Those, that's not a church. No, that, I was, the other, we, we did church in a field. Well, was there a pastor there? No, we were playing Frisbee, but it was still a church. And I was just like, that's not, that's, no, that's not, that's something else. I'm sure you had a good time, but, but the, I kind of saw those grouping. They're called congregations of differences is the term they would use in sociology. So we have, the, so right now, you know, they don't want doctrine because doctrine closes off your social avenues. And I'm like going, I'm 55, but I, or 50, dang, I, this was my birthday. I'm 56. I go, I praise God that I have closed social avenues because that's where you get in trouble. And I'm the ones that God wants me to close. He wants me to close because they're not good for me or other people. And I, I thank you, Lord, for that too. That's not a postmodern mindset, though. That's not a sacro egoistical mindset. They want to be able to do everything. And I go, I should not be able to do everything because it's mm. unhealthy. That's what got us in trouble in the Garden of Eden. We we're trying <laughs> to do everything. Right? And that that brought so that's but that's kind of like I think what people are looking for. So, you know, and they do they do want to find middle ground because then they don't have to commit. They do. And I do notice, and I'll end with this too, I have a lot of friends on Facebook who were formerly Baptists who have moved to uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church. So because they I was, are really, they're just... They... Yeah, I was about to actually mention that and ask about that. If you've seen uh, a counter a counter to that. So you have the, the younger millennials and uh, Gen Z people that are moving in one direction, but then you have a movement uh, of people looking at that and going, that's wrong. And so they move in a, the complete opposite direction. They want 
more structure. Right. They want more authority. They want more dog uh, dogmatism. And obviously, we should be dogmatic about the truths of the gospel, but they're looking for something different, right? They they want more reverence and i and i do i do i mean and uh you know Je- jeff really knows this because he's way older than us but i remember going to church and it felt like church i mean the organ playing mm. you walk in you know you, you you had it and uh and i uh well i uh one sunday we were we were watching i was watching sunday morning youtube and um it uh was uh um chuck swindoll's church in in texas and I was watching. I go, oh, I feel like it's it's like a time portal, man. I'm going back <laughs> in time. It's you know, it feels, and I, I and I miss it. You don't you know you don't want to be in love with the form as much as you want the content, the substance. But they the uh, the focus was on God, like God Almighty. And I noticed the difference. And then I went to our church, and I, we had a good church. This uh, we were in, in Lynchburg. Uh, it was it was a good chapel. Uh, one uh, there, but um, I was, we're listening to the music playing, and I, I lean to my wife and I go, "Do you hear? Are you listening to the lyrics? What words do you use? I, me, my, all the time. It's all focused on the self. Yep. You know, and you go and you go to like you know uh, uh, whatever whatever Chuck Swindoll's church is, and they're talking about you know God of our fathers and you know these great heavenly you know images, and I go and that. And, and the organs playing, and you know, two hundred voice choir, and it was just oh, I was so inspired. And I'm not mm-hmm. saying the music today is is not cool. A lot of these churches have got really great music teams, really nice. And I'm not saying that people don't love God. That's I'm not saying that either. But what they're offering up, it fe- it feeds more of the person's ego out there. Yeah. Uh, we I, and I did not sing the song when they, when they did the chorus. The song was basically saying that Jesus was their boyfriend. Gosh, yeah, and I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm not gonna. That's I go. That remind me of uh, Julian of Norwich. It's a mystic, it's a mystic in the in the 12th century. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm not. He's not my boyfriend. He's my savior. Yeah, you know, and and my brother. So that's good. But yeah, yeah, no, and the, the, oh, man, there's some good insight in that. Uh, to to piggyback off something you were saying about the music. I think you you clarified something that a lot of people realize, but they don't realize what the issue is. And they they make it about hymns versus contemporary music. But there's some there are some truly awful hymns if you go and actually look them up and listen to them. Truly awful. Why? It's what you pointed out. What is the focus on? It's on me. I'm not worshiping God. I'm worshiping myself. I mean... There, there's, I, I can't remember the name of the song, uh, but it's one of my pet peeve songs. Uh, you know, I'm coming back to the heart of worship and it's all about you, except the song's <laughs> all about, it's all about me. Them. It's like, it's a song about me worship, making it all about God, but it's all about me. It, It's so weird. It's this like weird meta look at yourself it's bizarre to me, but that's the problem with modern modern worship is not the the style. And yes, it's the content, but it's really look at what the content is about and who is it worshiping, because the style can be perfectly fine. Yeah, that's, but that's the pickle, though, isn't it? Because 
we want you, you need to reach people personally, right? And you need to attract mm-hmm. them somehow to have an apologetical discussion with you. So it, it's, yep. and, and that's where we, we talk about pietism, like, and not like the rude, snobby pietism, like a, a pietism that's trying to like be more like Christ and, and be, you know, um, more biblical and, you know, be more, more healthy. Someone um, who's trying to be pious, you know, you, righteous. In a, in a good sense, not, not 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 like the Sadducees, but more of like Nicodemus trying to do the right thing. Well, you got to do some self focus, and so and and if you don't, you're actually you're guilty of another sin. You know, it's like I, I was I was at a, some Wesleyan churches like 20 years ago, and I remember some guy they're they're saying, "Does anybody have any prayer requests or prayer uh, pro, prayer uh, you know praise or whatever it was?" And this one guy stood up and he said. I want to praise the Lord because it's been 20 years since I've sinned. And I'm like saying to myself, of course, right now when you just lied, but you know, it was like, but he really, and, and I go, and I think that's that self delusion. And I'm like going now, could he be better than he was before? Yes. And we all want to be better than we were before. And part of that's not only behaving well, it's thinking well. And that, that's what, that's the apologetical part that we need to help yeah. them think better. And then also the empowerment of apologetics is, you know, it's based on truth. And truth supports you. It, it also helps you be uh, secure in a very insecure time. Everybody's mm-hmm. losing their head, and you go, I don't, I don't have to, my head is Christ, so I don't have to worry about that, too. And then, of course, they'll sit there and go, you're so arrogant and cocky. And I'm, like, I'm not, I'm not, I just, ha- I'm standing on the rock, not on shifting sands, so. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there's some really good and fascinating stuff in this. I, this has been a truly dense conversation. Uh, this is one of those episodes <laughs> where people are going to have to listen to it twice. And I really hope that some people do listen to it twice uh, because it's so important. Now, one thing I want to point out, you, you were talking about, you've talked multiple times about ego. You talked about worship music, feeding people's egos, not about God. It's about me. What happens when you feed someone's ego in church is you start to you start them on that process of deconstruction you get them focused no longer on god but on themselves they look to themselves as the authority when they have questions it now becomes harder to ask someone else that question uh, especially in a culture that has raised people to believe that they are you know, everyone's a genius. And look, at this is one of the most common manipulation tactics that I see across the board is you dogmatically assert something and then you basically, through implication and design of your statement, you say, and if you believe with you believe what I just said, you're smart too. And if you don't believe me, you're dumb. You don't want to be dumb, do you? You want to be smart. And so what do the people do? They go, well, I'm smart. I, I'm smart. I'm, a, I'm, I'm smart. So I, I believe that too, obviously. And again, you start people down this path where they, can, they can't think for themselves, yet they believe that they can only, like, that they have all the answers, but they can't think for themselves. And they're in this self-destructive cycle And again, you see them start to spiral through this process of, in the modern time, it's this process of wokeness 
and then eventually just completely abandoning any pretense of Christianity. So I want to bring it around. I want to wrap this conversation up on this thought. And let's frame it in the the context of apologetics, because this is really what we're talking about. But how do we respond to that in a practical sense? I know, again, people are listening to this program because they're looking for answers about what's going on in the world. How do we respond to it? How does the church correct these issues? But how do we, in a practical sense, as Christians, respond to this? How do we help people who are in this self-destructive cycle? Well, the first step is is to acknowledge it and acknowledge it within the framework of the church. Let me uh, give some data points um, uh, on, on this issue, Kyle. Uh, Pew Research released a religious landscape uh, study, which was uh, stratif- stratified, stratified by generational cohorts, greatest generation, baby boomers, millennials, etc. And if older to younger is my left to right, there were some things that just for my visual here, there were some things that weren't necessarily surprising. So when you went from older to younger, the belief in God, the authority of the Bible, uh, the reality of objective truth all dropped down um, significantly. Um, Those things weren't surprising. But there were a couple of things in this particular study that were surprising. One, the belief in a real heaven and a real hell was curiously very consistent across all age groups. This Mm. is a transcendent concept. This is a concept of something beyond the natural. This is a concept that deals with the supernatural and the prospect that there is something on the other side of what we see today. This is a really significant element uh, about the potential of that the seeds of truth. There's some ground there that is absolutely been prepared for us to be able to take the message and 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 be confident uh, about the truth that the gospel represents. The second correlation to this, and this goes back to my comment about you know apologetics has two elements to it: one, sh- demonstrating the validity of uh, the Christian claims, and then demonstrating how every other deviant ideology. Uh, from that uh, fails. As you move away from the belief in God, as you move from the older generation to the younger generation, there was also something that was very, very obvious in this particular uh, survey, that there was a direct correlation to the lack of peace and well-being in their lives. Mm. This learning is uh, significant. Um because the younger generation is desperate for truth, even while they deny the possibility of objective truth. Um, And they are dying inside a little bit every day until the church takes this reality in mind. Kyle, I'm a big critic um, of the average church youth program, and John John knows this very well. Uh, I believe that youth programs are a failed experiment, certainly in, in larger, mid, mid-sized and mid-sized churches. Uh, they need more time, I believe, 
um, sitting with their families on Sunday morning, hearing the uh, truth of Christ and less time playing dodgeball in the gym during a church service monitored by the lowest paid uh, church staff member. And by the way, this is not an assault on godly men and women who feel called to minister to youth. It is an assault on how these programs are not adequately preparing our youth for the realities of the world. Oh, and if yeah. the church does not do it, who will? And, and Kyle, you know this uh, uh, as much as uh, uh, we do. That line, that line of volunteers to fill that gap is very, very long these days. The quote that's attributed to both Lewis and Chesterton, um, but one of them certainly said it, um, made the following comment that the problem with no longer believing in God is not that a person will believe nothing. It's that they will believe in anything. Mm. Nature and the human mind absorbs, uh, abhors a void. And when the church mm -hmm. fails to do its job, back to something that you said earlier of personal ministry, the people in the, in the pews and certainly the most vulnerable, the, the youth and John and I talk about, how to really take this message to the youth. The people in the pews will seek a replacement for real truth, yeah. regardless of how personally destructive the ideology could possibly be, because the poison tends to be wrapped in layers of fluff and sugar that gives you a temporary feeling of satisfaction uh, while it slowly destroys you from the inside. Effective propaganda... Um, can literally lead people off a cliff willingly in spite of the obvious uh, consequences. And I believe the average yeah. contemporary church has willful blindness, uh, Kyle, to this reality. Here's one thing yeah. that I will say that I believe this fact has God's hand on it. 85% of the churches in America today, evangelical churches, uh, are of congregations of 100 or less. A lot of what I mentioned is really an issue for the greater 15% of the larger mm -hmm. churches. Mm -hmm. But I do believe God's hand is on this reality because of what you just said. It is much more real for me to have a program and an understanding of personal ministry when I've got 100 people to deal with than when I've got 10,000. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I've said it before, and I'll say it again, and I will stand by this. There is no healthy megachurch. I don't care what example you have. There is no fully, keep in mind, fully healthy megachurch. Uh, I could probably go further than that, but I'd probably get in trouble. But, John, I, I'm curious, because <laughs> you've been in the classroom teaching for you know a, a, quite a, quite a number of years. Give us some of your thoughts on that, because you've seen this in a very practical sense. Uh, you know, a lot of students coming in, Christian background, church, then you get them. What are your thoughts? What are you seeing? I think I think the one, uh, and I've been teaching, like I said, uh, and I, humanities, church history, Bible, sociology, so I kind of my humanities spheres across the across the board and there's still really good students out there 
there's still people who really thrive, you know, strive to, to, for knowledge or honest, mm. intellectually honest. But I think the the dishonesty and the uh, kind of like a volitional delusion that's allowed to go on now by mm. adults, especially Gen Xers, boomers, you know, they're a lost cause. They have no soul. But yeah, I'm just kidding. Uh, the 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 Gen Xers were lazy and were cynical and and were cowardly. And so what you have is you go, I could confront these students, but is it really worth it? And so they let the kids mm. get away with stuff. And I that's what I see. And the administration actually, uh, in many places, rewards that sort of like abdication of. Uh, adult responsibility, adult moral edification responsibility, because they want retention and they want tuition money. And I do know it's expensive to 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 run a, a school now, but my main goal is to give to, to kind of uh, dispense truth to the students and less about taking care, take care of their emotional needs. You know what I mean, or at least at least their emotional comfort level. In fact, if if they are comfortable. I would uh, dare say I'm probably not teaching them well, <laughs> you know, because the whole thing is the the Bible does not say a polishing rag sharpens iron; it's iron sharpens iron, and that's what they need. Now, we don't. I mean, these are human beings with eternal souls, so we don't want to toss anybody away. But sometimes you got to call it out for what it is, mm-hmm. and that's not mm-hmm. rewarded. In fact, anytime I've got chastisement from any institution which has ha- happened, it's mostly because I'm being completely honest and, uh, and trying to help them see it. They don't want that, though. It, and um, and I will say this, I'm not trying to be misogynistic here, too, but I think I get, I get more stuff from the women than I do from the men because the women, it's a matriarchal society we've kind of moved into in America. It's all about self-empowerment. Mm-hmm. And, like, if I say, well, men are just, like, 200% stronger than women, they're like, you're sexist. I go, I'm not. And, but that's a, a, a statistical reality. And they go, don't mansplain to me. I go, I'm not mansplaining to you. This is what we used to call truth and evidence, you know, and, and, but they, but they, and they have these little the script they have to maintain yeah. their delusion of, and I'm like, listen, women are way superior to men in many other ways. So you just, you're, you're not focusing on the right thing, but we want to be truthful and honest. And so they don't like that. Um, Middle management, I'd say, is for the most part really cool still. But the higher you go up, the more political it gets. So that kind of trickles down. And yeah. I would say it's not just a, a educational, institutional problem. It's it's across the board in American society. But it does kind of bleed into other areas too. So, But I do think there is, I think there's a movement out there for people who, because they can see, like the Gen Zers, they can see how well it did not work for the millennials. And how dumb they are. And they kind of want to do... Now, they're not in love with boomers. They're not in love with boomers, right? But that's because they're also they're also younger and they don't know. Um, and I will say this too. Um, and, and no disrespect to that Pew report. But the younger a person is, especially when they become a young adult, the more apt they are to question authority in God. Because that's part of being young. Yeah. You want to find out for yourself. So that's not necessarily... Um, you know, bad, except for there's nothing to, uh, there's no incentive for them to, to learn more now that we had because they're allowed to stay in their perpetual state of stunted development yep. where they don't care about the proof. 
or they don't care about the facts. And I go, listen, if Christ did not rise from the dead, then our faith is vain. Right? That's the it, it's it has to be about that. And and they don't care, and they're allowed to not care. So I do say I think boomers get a bad rap. I think the Gen X's are the more toxic ones, honestly, because we do nothing. And that's well, wrong. I'm you know, I'm not gonna comment on that one. I'll leave to... I'll leave that opinion to uh to to you as a representative <laughs> of the Gen X. Oh. I'll just insult millennials because you know I'm safe saying that. <laughs> I will. I will say this though: if anybody calls me a boomer, I say I'm not a boomer. I'm a Gen X, but whatever. And that's my. But whatever is the Gen is the Gen X response. Whatever, <laughs> you know, because I don't want to fight it, you know. But uh, but I, I I do I love I I'm actually pretty pretty pleased with what I see from uh, Gen Zers now. I don't know how they'll be in five years because they seem very they seem to be wanting more. Than the millennials. Millennials want mm-hmm. only thing they they and I've only taught millennials for the most part, but they only wanted to hear what they wanted to hear, and then they would punish you if you said anything else. Yeah, the we Gen were a transitional generation. More open. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Again, yeah. We, we trained you. We trained you, so it's not your fault necessarily. <laughs> well, no, we're still responsible for our own actions. Uh, just because we weren't given well, a great <laughs> foundation. Doesn't mean that uh, we can just yeah, use that as an excuse. But if you're in your late twenties and early thirties, you are responsible for sure. Absolutely, I don't care. You know, <laughs> but. no, I, I think you you point out several good things, and th- this is something that you know a lot of people say this, and and you said it too, um, but you gave a little bit more substance, and I want to play on that uh, as we're wrapping up. But Gen Z does have more hope in it, more potential in it than millennials, I think, than we did. And again, I I already said it, it's because millennials were very much a transitional generation. We were that, and I'd say Gen X was, was as well. Both of these generations were really transitional generations. We were moving from a truth based society to a post-truth society. And now what we've handed over to Gen Z is kind of the consequences of that. And they're look, they're more willing to look for answers. The problem is they are postmodern. That's the only system that they know. And they're willing to accept. So anything can be equally true. It doesn't matter. It can be absurd, yet they'll believe it, which is why we see them believing absurd things. But there's also opportunity in that. Now, to to wrap it back around, I think this is one of the things that was being kind of said is how do we reach these people? Well, functionally, nothing's changed. We still engage with people the same way. There are just certain barriers that have been put up. Uh, John, you mentioned in talking with uh, women that they're throwing up a script. And I thought that was a a very apt way to put it. Because even though these people don't believe in objective truth, they believe in truth. You, You can't not. They verbally deny it, but in reality, they believe certain things. So they throw up a script. 
So the thing is, skirting around the script to give them truth and give them the gospel. In reality, nothing's changed. What you're dealing with is you're dealing with that toddler mentality. I don't know if either of you have had this experience of arguing with the toddler. And the toddler will just say the same three things over and over again. And as a parent, you learn how to skirt around that to circumvent that defense and deliver the truth to them and educate them. But by gosh, is that just the hardest thing ever and infuriating? It takes so much more patience. And I think patience is something that we lack nowadays. And I think that's why we see less quality one-on-one discipling in churches is because Mm. that takes so much more patience, so much more organization, so much more maturity, and it's easier to not do that as much, to let it slide a little bit, let people slip through the cracks. Well, and I think, and I think this, this kind of goes to something Jeff had said earlier about, you know, the uh, youth ministries are kind of woefully Mm. prepared that, I mean, I, I had, I think in junior high and in high school, I had mentors like adult mentors, not peer mentors, adult mentors who would talk to me about faith and, and like, you know, the biblical truths and, and, you know, good praxis. And that really helped me. And I don't know if they have that as much anymore. We're also, you know, um, people are very phobic about saying truths right now because you don't, you, you, you get punished for it. You don't get rewarded for it. And then I'll say, so I'll start up if I taught, you know, when I taught sociology, I'd say, let's, let's dispense with half truths. Let's only, let's try to be full truths, but let's be kind and merciful to each other. Right. And just try to understand each other. Are you guys, let's try not to be political. At the beginning of the term they go, and a lot of them say, yeah, that sounds great. And of course in the middle, when their, their power threshold gets threatened and they'd kind of like, you know, retreat a little bit too. But I'm like, I go, you, you are really misunderstanding that power is an illusion, really. But love and loving truth is actually the most factual thing, and that's actually the most rewarding thing. Um, but that's not, what the, that's not what they hear. I was going to say one thing, though, I do notice, and this, is, uh, this really damages, I think, uh, the religious scene, per se, is there's a leveraging that goes on now, a leveraging of love, where people say, uh, if you love me, you will do what I tell you to do. And mm. and I, I'll say in my, my biblical studies class, I go, listen, guys, if I say something about the Bible that's wrong or seems off, go with the Bible. Don't follow me. Go with the Bible. I'm going to do my best to be you know respectful and representative of God's word. But that's not what they're they're told right now. And they're leveraging it because, you know, you, you have a youth pastor. Yeah. You love your youth pastor. You know, you love a teacher in high school or, you know, and that you really connect. But you got to remember, like, like I, I, I'm, I don't know how many English teachers you've had. I've had tons of English teachers and they weren't Christian. So they're going to spin something in a, in a very worldly way. I love them. You know, and you want them to be true, you know, to be authoritative. And of course, they're saying stuff that feeds your flesh and your worldly, you know, worldliness too. But that's that's the danger, and it's it, it is an ex- exploitation of it's a manipulation of the sentimental. Mm. And we've I'm like, 
I go, I, one of my, I won't say who it is, but you know, my favorite seminary professor uh, in, in college, uh, in, in seminary, um, I don't always agree with him now. I really respect him deeply, but we, our paths in certain areas diverge because I'm going to stay closer to biblical truth. You know, and I could still be respectful to him. I can still listen to him, um, but I'm just, I'll go, he'll say something and I'm like, eh, I don't think that's quite right, you know? Yeah. And, um, but I don't think people are taught that or rewarded it too. And I'm like, uh, this is closer to, to uh, Jeff's, you know, g- generation R than ours. But, um, and by the way, I think I'm two years younger than him, just, you know, so we're pretty close. Um, the, the kids who are in their 20s and the 60s, they were really very cynical, wouldn't they? They wouldn't accept anything, right? And now the kids now are so, like you said before, are so acquiescent and kind of capitulating. And I'm like, where's your youthful spirit? You know, <laughs> and I think kids, and I've heard this before, younger kids, they can smell out hypocrisy like nobody other, right? They're so good at that. And then call yep. it out. And I don't, I don't see that as much. I don't, maybe they, I th- and I think that, I think my generation beat it out of them or scared them. And I'm like going, I, that's why even like in class, I'll have, you know, I'll have people who aren't Christians. I'll have people who are, you know, kind of like radical. And I go, I love them. Cause I go, now tell me why you think that. And then we, and we do, I want that. I want that bravery and that courage. I just want intelligence to go with it, you know? So, and that's what I kind of do, but I don't think that's, that's not rewarded. It's, it's kind of this namby-pamby moral therapeutic deism that's kind of being dispensed. <laughs> that's just like, it's like, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of like diet, diet root beer. Blech. You know, it's like, who wants to drink it? Nobody wants to drink it. It's gross. You know, I don't want that. I want real stuff. So. <laughs> and uh, oh, Kyle, my goodness. I think your your um, question and comment regarding you know what needs to be done. Certainly, there's a long list of tactical things, but I think it starts with um, uh, one: the awareness of reality of this uh, in the ministry. Um, what we can't do, though, is to suggest that any one of those tower, generational towers carries a unique um, issue that um, is creates an argument of them being a lost cause. Amen. You know the expression yeah. when you, if you're if you're a liberal um, if you're not a liberal when you're 20 you don't have a heart. If you're not a conservative when you're 40 then you don't have a brain. Well, if you take a look at this from a macro perspective, each one of the generations get a little bit more conservative, get a little bit more biblically centric, get a little bit more appreciation of um, an evaluation of truth versus lies. So the fact that it is a stair step in belief from the younger generation to the older generation, that is not arbitrary. That That's an impact of somebody uh, uh, over time rationally evaluating the facts. But what we can't do is to suggest that we've got any of these silos on the lower end and for some reason that they're lost uh, causes. Now, the other yeah. thing is we can't wait for that cycle to naturally occur because we got people dying in their sin and waking up without God every single day. So yeah. God's going to have his impact 
on people. But the fact of the matter is, you and I have been challenged to ministry for a reason. And we've got Amen. to understand, and, and back to something that you mentioned earlier, here's the issue and here's where it starts of what can we do. The minister must ask his, himself, do I realize that the next apostate may be sitting in my church pews? And if that is the case, what am I going to do about it? Amen. Yeah, that's the, that's the reality of the situation. And if I can kind of summarize this, it's our marching orders have nothing's changed on our side. Our marching orders are the same. The gospel is the same. The Bible is the same. The Great Commission is the same. None of this has changed. None of our, our, what we do has changed. The only difference is that our culture has shifted and we need to understand the shift. It's, are we talking to, you know, are we Peter talking to the Pharisees? Are we Paul talking to the philosophers on Mars Hill? Where are you at? They understood the people that they were talking to. They didn't change their message, but they knew where they needed to start. The starting point is the only thing that shifted. If we get that right, we can communicate to Gen Z. If we get that right, we can communicate to millennials. If we get that right, we can communicate to Gen X, so on and so forth. Those differences in generations are really just a difference in starting point of communication. And that's a valuable resource to know, but that doesn't change anything about the people that you're talking to, about where they're at, about their eternal reality, or even about their ability to understand truth. Despite Satan's attempts to convince us otherwise that there are lost cause people, that there are certain people that won't accept truth. No, 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 no. Nothing's changed. And I can tell you one thing, the Greco-Roman world was at least, at least as gross as 2023 America. Probably a lot grosser. Yet, they were able to preach to them and the gospel was able to advance. So, if I can summarize a few things about this whole conversation, because we do need to end. We've gone on for long enough, though we could, I think we could all go a lot longer uh, apologetics is still a valuable thing. Yes, there are apologists, people who do this on a professional capacity that have not understood the shifting times nor the religion that they're fighting against nowadays. What's the predominant religion of the age? It's no longer secular humanism. It's now into different things. It's into a bizarre neo-pagan blending of everything. Uh, and so you need to adapt to that. But apologetics is still valuable. Understanding truth is still critical. Enemies within the church itself is an apologetic ministry. So yeah, there's still value there. Don't abandon that. Don't forsake that. And unfortunately, if you do that, if you forsake these things, you will be forsaking logic, you will be forsaking truth, 
you'll become just become a mirror, a reaction to the deconstruction, to the woke Christians, to the radical left. You won't be standing on truth, and you won't have a reason for why you disagree. And, and John, that's something that you had mentioned that, that kind of caught my attention, was the ability to disagree with someone is really dead. Now, the, rea- the reality of where we're at is it's reaction. It's easy for people to reactionarily say, I disagree with that, so I'm going to be the opposite of that. What I'm talking about is the ability to look at someone and say, I respect you, there's truth that you have, there's value that you have, but in this area, you are wrong. And I am confident enough to go with God's word and disagree with you for these specific reasons. So let's rest on truth uh, and go with God's word. So guys, I want to give you each about two-ish minutes, uh, say a few closing thoughts, and then let's wrap it out. Yeah, I'll I'll go real quick, just real quick. There's something I want to say, though. The wonderful thing about the first two, three centuries of Christianity is um, there were apologists at that time, and who were they talking to? They were talking to pagans, right? Pagans Mm -hmm. and sophists. Sophists are those who uh, sell their words of wisdom, right, for a price. Well, we have sophistry right now going on. People who darken, they darken our counsel with words without knowledge. So you go, you could say, well, things are way different now. I go, no, that's exactly the same as it was in the first century. Oh, there are more of them than there are now. We just have more people now. But, mm-hmm. you know, you would have, you would have, you know, the disciples and the apostles and the, the you know, church fathers reaching out to, their pagan communities that surrounded them and, you know, and also their civilized communities around them to try to reach them for the gospel. So if you really want to know, you know, how you can reach your society right now that surrounds you, you know, read, read acts, read the epistles, read the, the, uh, the letters, of the apostolic fathers, even though it's not biblical, they still are good cultural resources to understand how to reach people of the age. And like for yeah. the sophists, I'm like, listen, read the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, read Proverbs, you know, uh, read, you know, uh, get some Plato or, you know, read some stuff on Socrates because Socrates hated the sophists because all they did is they sold their opinions and they made it sound so good. It's so appealing. And that's what appeals to people today. And I'm like, I go, you know what, I would if I had my choice between someone who looked cool, had the best music, all that sort of stuff, you know, but is telling me a lie, or a hayseed farmer, right, missing all his teeth, you know, I'll but telling me the truth, I'll take the truth. You know, but I don't think that's what people want now. They they get they confuse ethics with aesthetics. Mm. And I go, no, just because it's pretty, it doesn't mean it's right. But that's very millennial. And I go, it's Ethics is the only thing that matters. In fact, I mean, and and that's like, like I said, I just I, I want I want and I I want authenticity too. I really do, uh, but I also want truthfulness, like in reality, because that's what they help me. The other stuff is just a, it's a poisonous placebo. It's not even good for you. Mm. So that's the other thing I would say is just to kind of like if you, if you're a, if you're a pastor, if you're especially if you're a youth pastor, you know, 
you want to raise you know your people up in a way that they're empowered with knowledge and compassion right so you have the principles and the praxis and then um just i mean i think actually it'll naturally they'll naturally be successful and they'll naturally be secure and then other people will see them and they'll go what are you doing you go well i'm just doing what the bible says i'm supposed to do because that's not what they get you can do all that you can do all the tricks and and, and the, the, the the fancy parlor all stuff that that is it might help in the short run but in the long run you can't get away from principle and practice so that's what i would say yeah so what you're saying is we need to get people to love god with all their heart soul mind strength <laughs> See, that's a great idea. Around. Why isn't that in yeah. the Bible someplace? Oh, wait, Jesus. Oh, wait, Jesus said that. That's right. Now I'm remembering. Yeah. But oh, and by the way, in regards to that, when Jesus says the greatest commandments, who does he start with? He starts with loving God first. Right? Yep. And then yep. loving people. Yep. And right now, I think you probably agree with me, it's the reverse. Oh, oh yeah. It's the yeah. reverse. That's but one that's of my not biggest frustrations. Yeah. No, it, it starts with. But if you love God, God. Yep. So that's what I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, Jeff, what are your. What's the last things that you want people to know about this? Uh, <laughs> at least well, for part one, because I have a yeah, feeling that there's you. going to be more conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Kyle, I'm going to use my wrap-up time to say how much I appreciate you. Um, Those of you who listen to this podcast regularly probably know uh, Kyle's story. Um, Those of you who don't, um, I came across Kyle when I came across his, probably, I'm going to guess, first YouTube posting where he uh, described his exit as a church planner from the North American Mission Board. I sit there and watched him and I saw somebody pouring out their heart in taking a stand. And I said, holy guacamole, I've got to talk to this dude. And that really set the stage for me to interview him as part of my book. Um, I just I don't know of any two men uh, who are after the heart of God than the two that uh, I'm sharing this time with uh, today. Appreciate both of you. And uh, Kyle, you keep up with your ministry. May God go with you. And thank you for the opportunity to join you today. Hmm. I really appreciate that. Uh, definitely don't feel like I deserve uh, that kind of compliment, but you know that's kind of the grace of God. Well, that's the grace of God is in the church, we can be, you know, we're all trying to be humble and serving God, but then we have our, you know, we have our family around us who can then remind us that, hey, you are doing a good job following Christ. I think it's easy when we're focusing on humility to slip into a degree of self-deprecation. And, you know, that's the just absolute phenomenal thing about the church is the family. And if, the way that a family functions is so beautiful. And I love that we, we get that, you know, Christ has given us so much more than we had otherwise, but 
it's been an absolute pleasure to have both of you on. And um, again, I think this is not going to be the last conversation. I think there are way too many threads that were put out there that we didn't pull on. But we do have to come to an end at some point. So I want to remind people, uh, I'm sure that there are more than a few questions from this podcast. Ask them. We want to know what your thoughts are. And especially if we do another conversation with the three of us, if you ask us some questions, then that gives us a good avenue to go down, to clarify things. Again, I feel like this is a rather dense conversation. So if there are points that need to be clarified, let us know. Again, YouTube, Rumble, Spotify, you can comment there or email us at contactwokipedia at gmail.com. But until next time, don't go woke.